welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 120 and today's episode, My Parenting Journey. I thought it might be helpful for me to share my personal experiences of those early years parenting my children. We've had a lot of new listeners, so whether you're listening to me for the first time or you've been an avid listener now for some time, I'm hoping that by sharing my experiences honestly and possibly a little graphically at times, it might bring you a little peace knowing you're not alone and hopefully a little more compassion for the incredible job you're doing. I will share what I wish I'd known or done in those early years as well. And when I was first sort of pulling together my notes on this particular episode, I sort of framed it very much in those my early parenting journey. But I've sort of ended up talking a lot about my births. I can all, you know, I can always expand. There will be other episodes, but I do think that a lot of the time, certainly from my perspective, is that when you're an outsider. Maybe you're an avid listener to a particular individual or podcaster, or maybe you love reading somebody's books, or maybe you love going to see somebody talk. I think sometimes we kind of lose sight of the sort of the person behind that because we see them in terms of the persona that's being portrayed by what it is that they do. And we forget that they're ordinary people living ordinary lives that have had tragedy and all sorts of other things happen. And I'm not suggesting for any moment here that I'm some celebrity but I do think you know that if if you if you haven't been in my world a long time and you don't know there are some aspects in terms of how I've come to do what I do that you may not know that I think actually is probably hopefully helpful hopefully empowering for you to know too here goes that ah here goes she says but before I start I want to give you a heads up that I am going to share experiences of loss and grief and childbirth for some of you this may trigger some of your own loss your own grief or particular challenges that you've experienced yourself so I would just say go gently with yourself and choose what is best for you whether you listen or whether you skip this episode be kind to where you are right now okay so here goes now I always knew I wanted to have children But I had had zero, literally zero experience with children of any age. I think I might have babysat very briefly um, in my teens, but I babysat children that were basically already asleep when I arrived. So I had had like zero, zero interaction. But I just, I don't know, I just knew I really wanted um, to have children. I never kind of cooed when I saw babies I had no idea how to hold them I'd never really engaged with them and I can remember quite vividly my brother who's seven years older than me when he had his first child I can still vividly remember they were living overseas but when when they came over I remember sort of being past this gorgeous little girl well obviously I can appreciate now she was this gorgeous little girl she being passed and I remember fumbling and not knowing how to hold her and my brother showing me and then she immediately started crying and I just couldn't wait just could not wait to give her back because I just had absolutely no idea I was awkward with them because I didn't know but I did know that I wanted children of my own now I met my first husband weird saying that but for context for those of you who don't know me my two children's father and I split and divorced seven years ago if you're listening to this episode at the time of recording and I've been remarried two years 
Now, I always wanted a big, bustly family of four. My mother is one of five. My father is one of eight. And I could, I grew up in that sort of, you know, I'm Egyptian. We had big family gatherings all of the time when we were living in Egypt. And when we moved to England and relatives would come over, it was just always big. So I knew I wanted this huge, big family. I had two in the end. And sadly, I'm now too old to have any more myself does not stop me from cooing and just desperately wanting to say hello to any child that I see but I would just have to wait patiently to be a grandma because I'm far too young (laughs) my children will kind of get there in their own time so my children's father and I met when we were 27 and we married at 29 now in episode 118 you will remember it was about family secrets so here's one of mine (laughs) although it's not really as my children know but anyway I was seven weeks pregnant when my first husband and I got married. So we knew we wanted to have children and we had heard that it could take a long time. So we kind of logically thought, well, you know, might as well get started early on the assumption that it could, you know, it could take months, if not years. And I felt I was getting old. I was 29, a whole different kind of conversation, but we got started. So I was very fortunate. I know that this is not the case for everybody. I fell pregnant very quickly, which I know is not everyone's experience. So we decided we would keep it to ourselves. So when I when we got married, I was seven weeks pregnant. So when my sister was helping me into my wedding dress and commenting on the size of my boobs, which by this time were pretty enormous, I brushed it away with like, oh, I think my period is going to start. And then when I didn't drink at the wedding reception, I simply said, oh, the excitement was all too much. And that was the reason why. And as everyone watched me devour the most humongous breakfast the day after the wedding I blamed it on not having eaten at the wedding properly see I lie so we then went on our honeymoon and I started bleeding while we were away and we panicked but I felt so sick and horrid that we took it as a good sign and when my first scan happened um, in those early weeks before 12 weeks we were reassured that everything was all right however when the results of my 13 week blood test came through I was asked to come in for a scan and to bring someone with me they obviously knew something serious was wrong And I, in my absolute naivety, was clueless. I had no idea. Didn't pick up on any of that. So my mother-in-law came with me as my husband at the time was out of the country with work. The scan confirmed that our baby had a rare condition called anencephaly. And at 20 weeks, a week before Christmas, I birthed and lost our son. Now we were devastated. But honestly speaking, I think we were pragmatic. You know, when I reflect on it, I don't feel we were in denial We just got a wake up call to just how precious and delicate the whole process of becoming a parent was. Now, I'm not sort of diminishing anyone else's experiences. I'm just simply recalling the experiences that I've had. And I've reflected on this a lot as to whether I was in some form of denial, whether I haven't necessarily processed it. But for me, I feel that I have. And, you know, my body recovered relatively quickly recovered quickly and I was given I can't remember it was a hundred times or a thousand times the dose of folic acid you know five months later I was pregnant again with my eldest a healthy boy born two weeks late nearly at home and nothing like my birth plan which I had organized for months so let me just give you a little bit of a little bit of that particular journey before we kind of go through some of the lessons because I think it might be helpful I'm hoping it's helpful so I was nearly 42 weeks both my children were were both late but with my eldest I was nearly 42 weeks late and I was due to have a scan on the Monday to confirm whether I was able to wait another week to see if Charles was going to deem us with his presence I 
personally didn't want to be induced. And so that's that's the avenue we were going down. I had niggles on the Saturday, but absolutely no signs of labour. And the midwife who came out to see me asked, I remember quite vividly her saying, how desperately do you want this baby? And I was like, so totally, absolutely want to have this baby. I was like huge. I was uncomfortable. It was like enough already. I just want this baby out. And she was amazing. And she did a pretty determined membrane sweep. Sorry, maybe too much information. I did tell you that I was going to share a lot. And anyway, in the morning of the Sunday, I was properly in labour. Now, I had wanted a water birth, but the hospital only had one pool and it was occupied. So this same midwife who'd taken care of me on the Sunday evening looked after me as I laboured at home. And she suggested that as things were going well, why not continue, you know, and have the baby at home? And we were like, you can't. We can't do that. Surely it's our first baby. First babies have to be born in hospital. That's where we should go because that's where all the safety thing is. And that's ridiculous. But she reassured us. And so we stayed and I laboured at home. And it was only when my waters broke and there was meconium that I was transferred to hospital by an ambulance quite spectacularly. Husband was racing behind in the car and I was desperate in the, in the ambulance trying to push. Charles was born very soon after arriving in hospital. Now, of course, you have all of this excitement. Well, not everybody does, but a lot of people have all of this excitement when the baby is born and then your parents come to visit and then there is the inevitable crash. Now, as I lay in the hospital bed and Charles wouldn't settle, I asked the nurses to take him and put him into the baby room. Now, just imagine for a minute how that might look. So I can see that they're probably thinking, hmm, interesting, this mother has only just given birth and she doesn't want to bond with her child. I was absolutely knackered. It didn't once occur to me that in any shape or form that I was behaving in a way that would have been a rejection of my child. But it didn't just end there. So anyway, he was taken away, swaddled, came back the following morning. I'd had a good night's sleep whole different whole different ball game but I also remember when the health visitor came to the house for the first time I had you know Charles laid on the floor on a sort of a, a you know like a ruggy mat thing and I made her a cup of tea and I was sitting chatting and he was sort of on the floor and I was sort of on the sofa and I remember I can't remember what she said she made some comment and again naive it was only afterwards I thought hmm I wonder if she thought that obviously I wasn't bonding or I was detached from my child in any shape or form. So I'm sharing this with you. Maybe I'm oversharing, but I'm sharing this with you because in lots of ways, I think people can kind of look in on the outside and think, oh my goodness me, she clearly loves being parented. She's like an amazing parent. She does this, that and the other. But my early experiences, I'm telling you, they I would love to see my health reports at some point because I'm sure they probably had a little red sticker there saying, mm, we need to keep an eye on this one because she doesn't seem to be accepting her baby particularly well. Just anything else that just gives you a bit of just knowledge that you're not the only one who might be experiencing these things. And these are obviously, I'm only giving you a slight narrative of those early sort of early sort of days. And, you know, with my first and my eldest, he was an absolute nightmare in terms of sleeping. I remember I'd be, I'd, I don't, don't know why, I don't know what possessed me to do this. He now has the notebook. But in those early months of him being born, I had an A4 notebook and I would write down every single feed time that he, he, he got, I breastfed both of my children. So I wrote down exactly, so feeding on demand, I fed on demand. And I just remember, I mean, it was 20 times sometimes in the night. This isn't daytime. 
I was exhausted, but I rem- for whatever reasons, I decided to write these things down, and it now becomes an amusing narrative that we talk, that we kind of, that we share. So I just think, you know, those early weeks and months, I think, were just a real eye opener. So when I talk to you, I wanted to sort of set the scenes in lots of ways before I talk you through what I think are sort of the five things that I wish I'd done differently or that I can share with you either because you're listening to this podcast because you're expecting maybe you're not expecting your first to be expecting your second or third or maybe you're listening to this podcast and you've got teenagers there are still aspects of what I'm going to share with you that I think are helpful but I also think what's helpful is also knowing that I was utterly clueless you know if there was a license to be had before having a child I don't think I would have got that license because I had absolutely no concept no idea now of course and I think that's probably true for so many parents with their first even if you have had lots of experience I was the first of my group of friends really close school friends to have a child so I didn't have that experience of other people and being around them and to be honest with you even if I hadn't been I'm not sure how kind of much I would have known anyway how much I would have necessarily engaged but there was a huge amount of naivety that a lot of us carry into that first child that when we then have our second or third or fourth however many children that you subsequently have I think we relax so much more we're so much more aware of what's coming up that I think that there's an element of that sort of shifting things and certainly my daughter was you know it was a much less complex home birth not that Charles was a complicated birth, but you know, hers was super simple. Four hours from start to finish in the sitting room, then I had a bath, then I was in our bed feeding her. So it wasn't necessarily that, you know, I'm advocating for home births or anything like that. I'm just simply sort of showing you the stark contrast in terms of that kind of approach. And I think for, for all of us, I think with each birth that we have with our children, I think we tend to become that bit wiser. We worry less and we're we're able to kind of see things in perspective. So before I give you the five sort of things that I wish I'd known or done, I want to just give you some context to this. I had, when I was pregnant, um, when I fell pregnant with my eldest, I was in the second year of a degree. So I had at this point resigned my corporate sales career and I had gone to university to study psychologists. I say this because I was free when I was pregnant of any pressures of career because I had already opted out and I was in an education system. I was free of financial pressures because the decisions that my husband and I made around where we lived were based on just one income. So I was free of a lot of the pressures that so many of you who are listening to this will not be free from. But I still think that the five things that I'm going to share with you that I wish I had known, wish I had done, ring true regardless of whether you were in the position that I was in or whether you're in a position where you are, there are financial implications as to what happens after you've had your child. There are pressures on you. There is potentially a career that you're desperate to go back to that maybe you can or you can't. I knew, you know, previously with my corporate sales career and I was away, I would be away like, 50, you know, 75% of the week that that wasn't possible. And I was it. I was fortunate enough to be able to opt out and choose. And back then there weren't fees to go to university. I had those covered. So I just want to place that into some context because I think it's really important that you're not, you know, if you're struggling with some of these financial implications, that you're not thinking that I had this sort of, I want you to know that I was free from that and that's why. So that's a, that's a context. So let me 
go into these five, which I think are really crucial. Now knowing what I know that I think I'd love to share with you to help. The first one is I wish I had not obsessed so much about my birth plan. I think most most women will will probably feel the same way. I say that on the basis of not necessarily trying to diminish the birth plan. Of course, the birth plan is something that you want to spend some time on because it it's, it's a dialogue that you have with your partner about how the process of birthing your child might look, what's the environment you might want that in. But I do think that we often spend more time on the birth plan than we do some of the other aspects that are actually about the realities of parenting, the conversations around what it might look like if we decide we do not want to go back to work, what it might look like if we decide that we do want to go back to work. What is it? What might it look like in terms of the flexibility? How might things work out? How do you and your partner feel about parenting? How might those responsibilities be shared? All of those things, I think, are actually conversations that in those when we are pregnant, we should and we ought to be having conversations around that get, you know, sabotaged by the emphasis on the birth plan. So the the first one for me that I wish I wish I had not obsessed about so much about it because for so many we don't end up with a birth plan that we had envisaged because that's life isn't it things are, are not always predictable and that I do think that whilst we should spend some energy on getting that on, on getting that in place there is so many other things that are really more crucial to the life after birth that we ought to be having conversations around much, much earlier. So that's the first one that I would say. The second one that I would say is, I wish I had invested more time in finding my tribe. You know I talk about this a lot. It takes a village to raise a child. And that village is going to look very different to the village that has been supporting you in every aspect of your life up to that point. Now, it may well be that your supremely close friends are also your tribe when you become a parent, but it's also recognizing that they may not be. We need different tribes around us for different things. And when we become a parent, it's so crucial that we are surrounded by people who we can be supremely honest with. Now, we only did the sort of the hospital antenatal classes, and I just didn't make the effort to get to know the other expectant parents. Now, I should have done that's what if I wish I'd known, I really should have invested more time in getting to learn them. So instead, what happened for me is I tagged onto my neighbor's National Childbirth Trust group, but always felt like an outsider. So when my eldest had colic, I didn't have anyone really to talk to other than my mother or my mother-in-law. And it's not the same as having someone that's going through similar trials and tribulations or has gone through or can empathise generationally a little bit closer to you. I mean, I was incredibly fortunate that I had the most supportive mother, the most supportive mother-in-law that I could have possibly have asked for. But it is a different kind of relationship. I mean, I had the most incredible relationship with my mum, but it is different than sharing some of those and having a tribe around you that you feel that you can call up and just have a bit of a no holes barred, you know, whether that's a sort of, you know, I'm really not enjoying this parenting. This is absolutely not how I expected it to be. I don't know if I could ever do this again. Whatever those fears that we feel that we often don't want to have conversations with with other people. So I really 
wish I had invested more time. I wish I had seen the value in that. And and I wish I had known that that was a really important thing to do. Having your tribe around you is a really crucial way of keeping you grounded, whether that's to do with that sort of those early months or years. But it's also, it's really crucial as your children hit those teen years and the pressures around them getting the right sort of exams, going to the right sort of schools and the university. If you've got the right tribe around you, they're there, you know, in a crucial aspect of diffusing so much of that societal pressures or that competitive parenting thing that we inadvertently get sucked into we don't necessarily do that. I, you know, I, I don't recall. I, I was not a competitive parent. I just absolutely, I was not the parent that you spoke to at the, the school gates if you felt that the children weren't getting enough homework or they weren't progressing in maths as quickly or their reading. I just wasn't because I was always about, I just want my child to be, to be polite with other children and to get on. So I wasn't that, that way, but it didn't stop me from getting sucked in periodically to thinking, well, my, you know, they should be taking on music lessons. They should be more, you know, taking wanting to be selected for school teams and other things. So when you have the right tribe around you, they're great at keeping you grounded in the, is that really what you want for your child? Are you just getting sucked into something because everyone else is doing it? So I really think that that is such an important part of our parenting journey and also beyond that in terms of, you know, who we are. So the first one is, I wish I hadn't obsessed so much about my birth plan. I wish I'd invested more time in finding my tribe. The third one is I wish I hadn't obsessed about always being the perfect mum and accepted good enough. Yeah, so I I, I can vividly remember doing really silly things like not cleaning the house, you know, cleaning the house with my child attached to me, my eldest, on a sling because I felt, yeah, listen to this, I felt it was wrong to leave him playing on the floor whilst I was otherwise occupied. I basically did all the things that I had to do, whether those were chores to do with the house, to, to do with cooking, whether that were chores to do with my, you know, at this time, at this point, by the time he was born, I was in the final year of my degree, whether it was writing essays, whether it was doing research, whether it was reading. I basically only did those when he slept. And then when my when I had my daughter for my PhD, when she slept and when they were awake, I genuinely was like, I felt like I was like, like let me entertain you. You know, like I always had to be on, I always had to be educating, fulfilling and enriching their lives, which is fine to some extent. But ultimately, children need to be able to occupy themselves as part of a very healthy process of developing. So I felt that I I obsessed far too much about making sure that their, that their lives were enriched and that I was always present and that I was always doing things that were educational and that I wasn't taking my time away from them, doing things that you know, I could do while they were sleeping, which is just ridiculous. I mean, it's completely and utterly nuts and insane. Being good enough, there is no thing as a perfect parent. There is no such thing as a perfect mum. It impacts and it takes so much from you, which I'll talk about in sort of some of these in four and five. You know, let's really be good enough. Now, when I was when I was, you know, in those early months and years of parenting, I was not on any social platform. I only went on social platforms once really, you know, much, much later on in terms of my business by the time my children were like 10, 11, 12. So I wasn't, so I can't say that any of this was influenced in any way by what I saw in social on social platforms about being a perfect parent. But it was an idealised version of what I felt that I had in my head about what it meant to be a perfect parent, 
Whereas really it should be around this good enough. And in lots of ways, when you have the right tribe around you, that's where they challenge you. Why are you doing that? Why are you not doing this? What, you know, what's making you do that and calling you out because that's what that tribe does. So number four, I wish I had done my own inner work. Now, whilst I genuinely do not believe the outcome for my children was negatively impacted, it did impact me. So we all come to parenting with our own baggage from our childhood. Those early years inform us as to what a family is like or not like. We make conscious decisions when we're older about this is where I'm going to parent this way because either I didn't like the way that my parents did that so I'm going to do this or I love that so I'm going to do more of it as well as a whole load of unconscious stuff that just seeps into our parenting once we've started parenting. We don't realise it until we get that triggering. Now, I had lost my father at 11 years old, very suddenly, and I felt very isolated in desperately wanting to talk about it with a mother who wanted to block it out. As a result, I created my own narrative, one which I can remember vividly still at 16 years of age, so five years afterwards. And of course, it permeates, it impacts everything. So this experience, I'm convinced is why I do what I do and why I advocate for an approach to parenting, which is all about conversations. If we don't have conversations with our children, our children will create conversations and narratives and explanations in their head, which can be wildly out of kilter. The reason why I say I wish I'd done the inner work, now thankfully in my case, I don't think it was damaging to my children as a result of not having open conversations when I was a child to make sure that I was very open with those conversations with my children. But it could have been. And I really think that, you know, it goes back to this whole idea about obsessing so much about our birth plan is there is so much that we bring into our parenting from our childhood that I think we ought to spend some time reflecting on and doing the work with at any point in our parenting journey. great if you're informed and you know about it and you're able to do the work even before you birth your child or you adopt your child or your child is you know is via surrogacy but it's just I just think it's a really crucial part because it will bite you on the bum at some point in your parenting journey because it always does it inevitably does our beliefs dictate how we behave and how we respond to things and our beliefs come from our experiences So I I wish I had done that inner work. I did the work, the inner work as I got older after my divorce. I just think doing the inner work is such a crucial part for any, any person, any child who needs it and any adult who needs it. And I'm sure I know that I will not flinch, will do the work if I need to at any point in my life. I have no stigma whatsoever attached to having some therapy in any form or having any support. I think actually it's a strength and not a weakness. And then the final thing that I wish I'd known was that I wish I had invested my time in taking care of me. The downside in becoming so obsessive about being the perfect parent and doing the right thing and sort of righting the wrongs if in terms of having conversations, making sure that I had conversations with my children was that I lost sight of who I was for almost 15 years. I was mum. I kind of lost sight of who Mary Han was, the joy, the laughter, the, the, you know, not that I didn't laugh, not that I didn't have joy in my life, but I'd lost who who I was in my character, what I, what I was passionate about, what I felt enormously proud of, what I was outspoken about, what my beliefs were, what my views were, what I found joy with how who I wanted to be it was all lost because it was so I was so consumed with this notion of being a perfect parent that I lost complete sight of who I was and that is 
part of that is self-care, of course, but so much of that is being able to do, have that time to just reconnect with who you are. You know, I've, I've talked about this so many times. Our role as parent is just one of so many roles that we play. And yet quite often once we've birthed and once we've had these precious little bundles, we lose sight of all of the other bits that we do, all the other bits that enrich our lives, all the other bits that make us who we are. And, and those aspects of the other parts of who we are, are not don't require money. They just require us to stay connected. And that's why I see these sort of five things interact so they kind of play into each other. You know, having that tribe means that you don't lose sight of who you are. Doing that inner work means that you're constantly in touch with who you really are at that core level, which means you show up as a parent that good enough parenting in the right sort of way and you don't become obsessive about anything in particular so I'm hoping that by sharing and hopefully not oversharing that that brings something to someone at any stage that you might be in your own parenting journey my give this week is is these top five tips and it I, I think what I would probably say is maybe use those as a reference point to actually ask yourself whatever stage you're at now obviously if you've got children who are 13 14 the first one about being obsessed about your birth plan you're not necessarily going to be reflecting on that because that's that's kind of done but the second one definitely even if you've got 13 and 14 year old is you know are you investing time in your tribe have you become obsessed about being the perfect parent are you doing the inner work and have you invested time? Are you investing time in taking care of yourself? Do you know who you are? Are you living authentically to who you are and all of the things that bring you joy? So I'm hoping that that checklist will be helpful for you to use as a reflective piece. As ever, all you need to do is head over to drmaryhand.com forward slash library where you'll find the link to download the resource. All you need to do is pop in your email address and you'll get instant access not only to this week's resource, but all the other free resources across all my podcast episodes. As ever, if you have enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful and love it if you could follow and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time. <laughs>